Please note that due to a technical issue, the first minute or so of this message was not recorded. We pick it up soon after that. He actually lectures in Luke's gospel and he, and he took us through a section of, of Luke. So it's pretty nice to have that kind of perspective and that kind of level of insight into Luke's gospel. Uh, and he took us through and helped us explore what a section of Luke's gospel that is the beginning of what is uh, Jesus's uh, described as Jesus's uh, latter Judean ministry. Uh, and it's signaled, this, this phase of Jesus' ministry is signaled in Luke, or the beginning of it, in Luke 9.51, where Luke says, when the days had drawn near for him to be taken up, uh, he set his face toward Jerusalem. And I just mentioned this because it's just a, uh, a context reminder. It's an important shift uh, in Jesus' operational timeline. We're now, uh, we're now three months out in the Gospel of Luke. We're three months out. Uh, from the cross and from the, the week of passion of Jesus. So you kind of, if you receive news or you know, or you've got news from your doctor that you've only got three months left to uh, to live, you would make uh, those months count, uh, you, you, you know, uh, the our imminent mortality has a way of, of sharpening and intensifying our relationships, our, our conversations, our actions, and, and where we devote our resources and our energy, where we spend time and, and who we talk to and all that kind of stuff. But in a way, Jesus has kind of been on the clock, really, uh, since Luke 4, where when Jesus announces publicly that he is God's agent of reconciliation, of, of, of recreation and blessing, that the Lord's favor is upon him uh, and the Lord's promises are upon him and that he has come to essentially reverse uh, all uh, that sin has thrown into chaos and all that sin has 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 caused to decay uh, and that he and that he that he personally is here to do this and that he's going to bring about a new humanity uh, out of this um, recreative sort of work strangely and largely but not exclusively we find that jesus is going to do this from, with the outcasts from people who are in the in the margins uh, the poor the captives uh, the blind and oppressed and 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 non-religious people luke writes his gospel so to assure people like this people who wonder who ask the question can they really truly and confidently know that God accepts them. Could someone as messed up and as jacked up, uh, self-assured or, or self-loathing uh, find inner peace uh, and acceptance and, and certainty uh, in, in God? And Luke says, yeah, in his gospel, he says that we find the answer to that in Jesus, in what Tim Keller uh, calls the, the staggering uh staggering egocentricity of his claims like like jesus says things like i am god and i have come to forgive sins and and i give eternal life it's actually found in me and then um, at the same time as these staggering egocentric claims there's this staggering non-egocentricity of his life 
like he drinks and he eats with sinners. He hangs out with tax collectors. And, and, and we see him constantly coming and serving. He's come to love. He's, he's come to serve. He's come to save. This God is actually here to serve and accommodate people, to undo and to transform all that sin has done in us and, and in the world and, and to replace it with a life of increasing devotion to him. Like he's not just doing it without a means to an end. He is the point of all that he does. And Luke says, you can know that God accepts you as you shape your life around the life and the claims of Jesus as they relate to you and find you. Today, we meet a family. <clears throat> we meet a family that who are doing just that. It's the family of Martha and Mary and indeed Lazarus. And as we get into this passage, here's a quick question for you. Like to think about as we as we head into this, what what drives you? What ten letter, ten words, sorry, sentence would you like to have engraved, uh, you know, on on your gravestone or your urn or you know, carved into the tree where they scatter your ashes, where your chemical compounds see out their decomposition, whatever. What shapes you? What 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 shapes us? What well, I'm saying, what shapes us? What what pulls at us? Uh, what defines us will, will probably go a long way to defining what gets written there, what gets printed on that. In our passage today, Jesus is saying that there are a lot of competing, uh, compelling scripts uh, to follow on from what Paul was talking about uh, last week. But none of them bring the inner peace uh, or bring peace to the inner turmoil uh, of our identity and purpose like like Jesus does. Well, like I said, Jesus has turned his face toward Jerusalem and, and, the, and the cross. And, and one of the things, one of the important things that Jesus wants to do for this final uh, phase of his, of his ministry is that he heads to the house or he arrives at the house of some famous sisters, Mary and Martha. And of course, Lazarus lives there too. He's just not mentioned uh, in this passage. And at the beginning of this period, at the beginning of this period of ministry, before Jesus gets it, Jesus had said, uh, you know, back in Luke 9, 58, that foxes uh, have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has uh, no place to lay his head. It's quite a picture of the lowly and the humble position and status that Jesus has, has come to know as God amongst us. Here we find here we find the staggering egocentricity of his claims. He calls himself the Son of Man. It's his favorite go-to expression. Speaks of his humanity, but it also uh, is a title that's attached to the exalted heavenly figure of this figure, this mysterious figure, this divine figure from Daniel seven. And then at the same time, the staggering non-egocentricity of his life. The Son of Man has has no place to lay his head. He, he don't have a home. It's been a costly and humbling exercise for God to enter into human history in a way that allows us to, to see him, uh, to, to, to touch him, uh, to hear him, those around at the time who saw him, that allows us to get to a place where we can actually hear from God in person and be sure that God actually does care for us. We see that through the life of Jesus. John's gospel tells us in the prologue in the opening 14 verses, that Jesus is the eternal divine agent behind creation or everything in creation. Uh, 
entered into this creation, became flesh and dwelt amongst us to offer to us this transformative power of his creative life to us, which eventually, you know, down the road will come to us via the cross and, and, and ultimately and most profoundly through his, rever- through his resurrection. But, but John tells us that he is, he's widely rejected. He, he comes to his own, but his own don't receive him. It is this son of man who has come now to the home of Martha and Mary. And as Kent Hughes describes it, um, to this place of, of irresistible sanctuary. What a beautiful picture for the home of Mary and Martha, a place of, um, of hospitality, a place of rest, a place where Jesus can actually feel safe, a place where Jesus can sit around a table with friends and share himself uh, with them, uh, he can teach openly and freely about the the, the at hand kingdom of God that that is coming in him, uh, which has dominated the message uh, and, and the content of of chapter nine into chapter ten. I kind of sat there, I was thinking about this, and I wondered if Jesus was to roll through the city of Kingston here in Greatest Frankston, wherever, whose house would he seek out? Who would Jesus feel most at home with, most comfortable with? I'm not sure it would be 47 Argyle Avenue, but I'd like to think it, it would be uh, one of the options. In my time off, it's it's been one thing that I've come to realise. I've been very busy serving and not so busy sitting. So if Jesus did roll into town, what I would be most comfortable with is the work of hospitality, not the not the relationships of, of hospitality. Seems I've developed a skewed perspective of acceptance and value. So it's, it's a bit of an occupational hazard, I think. And we'll get to it, but it's but this text is not saying that one is better than the other, or one is more virtuous than the other, or one is more necessary, but it is asking us, Jesus is asking us, and he's asking Martha to examine our, our motives behind why we would do either. And perhaps to Luke, as Luke positions this story here, Luke puts this listening and learning posture of of Mary. Here is a bit of a counterbalance to the acts of service that we find in the Good Samaritan story just before this. The Christian life is both. Indeed, it is theology and doctrine uh, and, and theology and doctrine that shapes uh, our action and our practice. You need to have both. You need to have an equal amount of both, uh, uh, of sitting and of serving. You need to nurture the soul before it's fit to serve. And that takes time and it takes devotion. Uh, you, you rush and you overlook spiritual growth and hearing from Jesus at your peril. Well, as Jesus is enjoying the, the aroma uh, of the food, the wine, the banter of teaching, the hospitality of this sanctuary, this home, Luke very succinctly lets us know that there's another story or better put another storm that's, that's starting to brew. Martha has welcomed Jesus into her home and no doubt it's her hospitality that draws him there. And again, as is the way with Luke's gospel, women are recognised for their equality uh, in society. Here is a take charge woman uh, who is organizing her home. It seems that she owns uh, this home. 
she's a she's a, a real uh, type a personality this this martha whenever we're introduced to the family uh, of mary and martha it's martha who who takes the lead and so she makes sure that jesus and his crew have all that they need in fact um the minute that she heard jesus was in town she would have been rolling hard she would have she would have been at it as Jesus arrived into town. Maybe she saw Jesus coming as he approached, coming into town, all kind of worn out, banged up and wearied by this Judean ministry that he's now uh, into. And she would have just kind of kicked into gear, uh, head down the market, get all the food that she needed, make sure the house was on point, fresh water, uh, fresh oil uh, and wine. There'd be, you know, there'd be baked scones, iced tea placemats, you know, candles, Jesus' favourite playlist playing uh, in the background, right? It would be like that. You've been to houses. It's like stepping into a Martha Stewart show. But this Martha, though, is the epitome of what Paul urges the church toward in Romans 12, 13. Contribute to the need of the saints and, and, and seek to show hospitality. Martha loves Jesus and she is all in on his ministry. And she organizes her life in service of him in response to his love for her. Martha is not to be demonized for her expression of her devotion. She just, in this instance, needs to be nurtured or corrected, if you like, on the execution of it, on the motives of it, on what's going on behind the scenes. Well, Luke also tells us that Martha has a sister. Her name is Mary. And while Martha is at hard uh, at work exercising her gifts uh, to give Jesus the kind of retreat uh, that he deserves, Mary is just camped out in the lounge room at his feet listening to Jesus's teaching. <clears throat> which is fine for a while until Martha realises that Mary is tuned right in and she is so invested into what Jesus has to say that everything else can just take a back seat, including Martha. Often the different approaches between the two sisters as painted as two approaches to the Christian life, one symbolic of, of service and one symbolic of contemplative, uh, you know, spiritualism. Like Luke is trying to present a choice between one or the other or, or, or value one over the other. And it's just a load of rubbish, really, that paints these both these sisters uh, both in an over-allegorised light. And it's not Luke's goal. And we do these sisters both a disservice when we do this. And we don't get to what Jesus, Jesus's correctional kind of reminder or reframing is for Martha. And that is to be defined by what Jesus does for her, not what she does for him. But to sit at Jesus' feet and to listen is Mary's bold and undivided, undistracted uh, move of, of discipleship. And, and indeed, Luke does paint her here as a model disciple at this level, someone who takes Jesus' teaching seriously, who thinks deeply and profoundly uh, and rigorously uh, through his words, through what he's saying. And she shapes her understanding and her approach to life and her understanding of herself through the claims of Jesus and through what he does for her. 
despite how Mary is sometimes portrayed, Mary's not some kind of starry-eyed, a groupie swooning in Jesus' presence, some contemplative, emotional, you know, mystical woman. Rather, Luke takes her seriously as she takes Jesus seriously. Mary is a theologian. She has the posture of a rabbinic student. But more than that, Mary is perceiving very clearly, indeed better than most, what God is doing in Jesus and where Jesus is going with his ministry and how that relates to her and how that should shape, as she listens to Jesus, how that should shape her actions and her life. A posture in that day that is remarkable when the pervading culture of the day had no room for female theologians, like rigorous knowledge of God is a gender-specific you know, speciality, but Jesus has no time for that kind of thinking. Not only did he permit it, but he encouraged everybody uh, to come and to learn and to be taught and to be shaped by him. It's something that everybody should do regardless of gender, of social status, of, of any of these things. In a few months' time after this encounter, Jesus is going to be back at the house of Martha. It's recorded in John's Gospel for the raising of her brother Lazarus, the raising of Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus. And again, he comes back to this house in chapter 12 for another dinner at the home of Martha. As Jesus, once again in that chapter, finds the, the sanctuary uh, and the security and the safety there amidst kind of arrest warrants and, and death contracts and just a general hostile vibe uh, towards him. It's here in this setting, in chapter 12, that we see how switched on Mary is as a scholar of the word of God in the person of Jesus and how that has shaped her and how that has led to her actions, to her service, to her ministry. She's the only person really who has listened to Jesus and perceived that he is heading towards his death. This is the latter Judean ministry. He's turned his face toward Jerusalem. She's the only person who has perceived that Jesus has come ultimately to give his life for her and that he is going to suffer and die. None of the disciples have grabbed this. None of the biblical scholars of the day have joined these dots, just Mary. And so she arrives on this occasion in John 12 to put all that listening, all that theological rigour into worship, into service, which is precisely what listening should do what theological rigor what thinking through who god is what he's like should do dwelling on the words the claims the deeds of jesus should cultivate in our hearts a heart of worship and worship that executes itself in service service of jesus out of adoration not out of need this heart of mary's already knows that it's accepted and it's loved because it is perceived what Jesus has done and is doing for her. And in chapter 12 of John, we find Jesus, uh, we find Mary, sorry, anointing Jesus' feet, a signaling, a symbolic signaling of his preparation for his burial. So here's a question. How much time do you spend listening, having your heart, having your soul cultivated by the, by the words, by the, by the person of Jesus, to what Jesus is saying? And we get that through the Gospels. This is Luke. He's recorded it for us. They've been preserved for us. How much time do we spend cultivating our hearts 
before it acts, before it interprets environments, before it starts to shape our identity. How, mu how much time do we actually literally spend being shaped by his words? So while Martha is busy preparing a banquet in the kitchen, uh, Mary is busy storing up a banquet in her heart. But this heartwarming scene of gracious hospitality and theological instruction will soon be disrupted by the storm that was building in the heart of Martha. As Jesus went on teaching and, and enjoying the food that Martha uh, has prepared in the aroma of Martha's work, Martha is becoming increasingly agitated, judgmental and bitter. She's probably banging a few pots uh, to get Mary's attention, maybe even Jesus's attention, a few dirty kind of greasy looks heading towards Martha, uh, Mary as she, she sits there uh, in, in the land room. <clears throat> but it's all to no avail. Until, Phil, as Phil Riken puts it in his commentary, the storm clouds finally burst and angry words come pouring out of Martha, revealing the condition under which she is actually serving. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. You see, part of the issue is not that Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. The issue is that Martha wants to sit there as well. But her self-imposed pressure to perform has, has pulled her away. Her, if I don't do it, the world will fall apart. Jesus' whole ministry will collapse. It's amazing how, far, how he got this far without me need for approval is creating an unattractive world of turmoil in Martha. And she's tripped up on being defined by what she does and not by being defined who she does it for. The primary meaning of the word here, uh, perispato, uh, which the ESV and the NIV have translated distracted there in verse 40, the primary meaning of this word is to be dragged away, to be, to be pulled away. Martha was wanting to do one thing, perhaps sit at Jesus' feet, perhaps be in the kitchen. But as Jesus points out, her heart is in inner turmoil as it tries to wrestle with the anxiety of perception of needing to perform and do many things rather than just be. But Tim Keller says it's all, it's all easy. It's all too easy to get dragged away, in particular from the word of God that, that should be shaping and cultivating and nurturing our soul to become divided, become distracted. And what you lose when you get dragged away is the life-giving center that empowers and equips you to do the things that you want to do, allows you to be at peace just doing something. A distracted heart, a heart that is pulled away from defining itself in a relationship with Jesus and his love for us, has to start seeking to self-define. And it's not a great place or a secure place to be. A distracted heart soon becomes a distorted heart. And it starts to perceive its environment through self-pity and, and com comparisons. It becomes bitter towards others. And, and, and soon our service, the exercising of beautiful things like hospitality becomes not, not service, but servitude. It's a burden. 
with unyielding goals and expectations and it distorts our perception of life and relationships with each other and with God. How crazy that working for God can actually keep us from enjoying and knowing God, can give us a distorted picture of God. This happens when working becomes a mean or service becomes a mean of approval, not an overflow from approval. Profound in listening to and cultivating the words of Jesus in your heart. And I tell you this morning, a great test uh, of this is, is getting a cold the day you're due back at church. They're even putting food on for you and back from leave, from being away for seven weeks. Now that asks some questions. Uh, the great irony of this message this morning asks some questions of where you find your acceptance. Are you happy to be comfortable with? And we see this graphically depicted in, in Mary's accusation, sorry, in Martha's accusations towards Jesus. Don't you care? Her relationship with Jesus has been distorted. She feels in this moment that perhaps Jesus is taking advantage of her, maybe using her, isn't interested in her. And so she drags Jesus into her conflicted heart and she takes her sister down at the same time. He sees them as the issue. You ever kind of lost your mind at God? Find yourself in such a place of turmoil or anxiety about being overloaded or out of control. Feel like this Christian life and the exercising of your expectations is just beyond reasonable at times. I have. I felt overburdened. I felt underqualified, heaped and heaped expectations and demands on myself that Jesus never actually put there. But my my insecurities allow me to get pulled away, to get dragged away, and to get defined by these things rather than being defined of what I know is true in my relationship in, in, in Jesus. And so what happens is you, you, you stay over there and, and it's a place of a storm. And I can accuse God of placing me there. I'd never be... I'd never come right out with it and say it. Well, not straight away anyway. I'd bang a few pots. I'd, I'd give a few kind of looks that suggest I'm unhappy until the storm clouds break and I chuck some kind of tantrum and usually don't even have the courage to name what's going on. And I lose my mind at some point and point at something or someone else and say, that's the problem right there, over there, them or that. Do something about that. God, fix that, change that, change them. And God is saying, how about I change you, big boy? How about we do some work right there? Ever wonder what God thinks when we blame him or others for our distorted view of the world? Well, if you grow up in an environment like mine, you might naturally uh, be inclined to hear God say, you want to complain, mate? You want to complain? I'll give you something to complain about. What do we find Jesus doing here? He knows this is not how Martha actually wants to be. He knows this is not how Martha normally rolls. But on this occasion, she has lost sight of what is true about her and Jesus, and she's pulled away from that as the centre. Jesus knows it, and he cares for Martha, and he loves her deeply. He is for her. And so he moves towards her with words of, of 
uh, confronting comfort. And he says, Martha, Martha. It's not a patronizing tone. This is Jesus speaking, loving concern. Whenever you hear Jesus use this kind of uh, coupling of a name, uh, this doubling up of a name, it's expressing deep empathy, deep concern. It's like in Matthew 23 where Jesus weaves over the condition of the city of Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem, their heart. Uh, Matthew 23, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you, gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing. It's just empathy and concern. Jesus weeps for the city. And the question is, will will Martha be willing to come, to be moved toward, to be gathered, to, to, to listen to what Jesus has to say? Jesus moves towards Martha with compassionate correction. Yeah, attitude is out of line. It's wrong. It's sinful. He's not avoiding that, but he also is compassionate. The problem is dragged away and distorted heart. The solution, uh, don't get bitter, get closer. Mary isn't doing anything wrong. In fact, she is doing what I'd love you to do. It's a good thing to be defined by me and not by your work. Why would you want to rob her of that? Why don't you join her in that? And Jesus doesn't say uh, you, your work, your service is to be abandoned. It's not, or it's not important. I'm pretty sure Jesus ate all the food uh, that Martha made and enjoyed it, just like I'd like to enjoy that cake that Izzy made, but not going to have an opportunity. It's why Jesus comes to a house. It's why he turns up there. Martha's part of the reason. But he is saying, don't let it, don't let it define you. It makes a poor God. In fact, it becomes an idol of your heart. Jesus never actually defines what the one thing that is necessary is. But one thing it could be is is that what is necessary is that in order for anything we do not to get distorted or distracted in our hearts, we first have to have a heart that is served by Jesus. It's out of the experience of his service for us, out of the overflow of his service to us, that we don't get bent out of shape. We all need to sit and listen to Jesus. Mary is a picture of what that looks like. It's intentional. She switched in, meditating on scripture, meditating on the words of Jesus and and, and prayerfully working our way for that. Even conversations about what we've learned, what we've heard, what we've prayed through with other people. Jesus is often not asking for more of us. He's asking that we make space for him so he can give more of himself. You know, Martha does respond well towards Jesus' correction because in John 11, just a few months after this moment, after this encounter, we find her giving Uh, one of the clearest pictures, one of the clearest insights uh, into who Jesus really is. It stands alongside Peter's confession in in Matthew uh, 16 and Mark 8. You know, you are the Christ. In John 11, after a pretty intense theological conversation about the resurrection uh, and, and all that's going on there and what it is, Martha says to Jesus, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming to the world. Like she's been able to really articulate 
better than most who Jesus is. And then in chapter 12, we find Martha back at it, serving. Only this time, no drama. In fact, it's just a comment, and and Martha served. Martha is secure again, centred in Jesus, and Jesus' love for her, understanding fully who he is, what he's come to do for her. At the end of the day, both sisters get to a place where their actions, their service, their motives, their acceptance are not defined by what they do, but what God has done for them, what Jesus is doing for them. And it came through sitting and submitting to the words, the claims, and even the correction of Jesus over their lives. That's where we find that God really, truly loves and accepts us. Let's pray. Loving God, we want to thank you for this incredible story, this moment uh, that Luke's recorded for us that, 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 that speaks to us that at the centre of all we do needs to be your words and your instruction and your correction towards us, that it might shape our lives in a way that leads to flourishing, in a way that leads to joy, in a way that leads to service, that doesn't become a begrudging duty, that sees us pointing the finger at other people, but in a way where you are constantly uh, nurturing us, uh, securing us, affirming us, and indeed, as we saw here, correcting us, getting rid of what is sinful practice in our life and making us more and more uh, like Jesus, we thank you for this word this morning, and we pray that it would that we would listen, that it would come into our hearts and and, and nurture us, and do some uh, just do some some work in there. Pray all this in Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks, folks.